Hi there, it's Sarah. Thank you for joining me in part two of the poltergeist story. Today we're going to start to explore some of the potential explanations for poltergeist narratives and put together a way in which, taken together, they may give us at least a partial explanation for the experiences of their victims. There are many potential explanations for poltergeist experience, as I'm sure you've already got the impression, both normal and paranormal, um, but there is no explanation that is a complete fit entirely and is able to explain the vast array of poltergeist behaviour that has been seen and recorded throughout time. But many offer partial explanations and many can be naturally taken together to form a pretty persuasive explanation. I'm going to outline some of these now. It is by no means an exhaustive list, but I think it's some of the more interesting and some of the more obvious explanations. I will try wherever possible to explain each theory with an illuminating case, but it should always be kept in mind, one, the fallibility of human experience and recall, especially under stress, and two, that, as mentioned, a lot of these cases, unfortunately, are very, very similar. So many of these theories can be applied to poltergeist cases broadly, to around 90% of conforming cases, which, although very useful for the purpose of our discussion, does make talking about some of these cases kind of boring, <laughs> because they're all so similar. But like I said, I think it's the social history around the cases that is more interesting than the specifics of the case themselves. So if it helps you to imagine a typical sort of film poltergeist when we're talking about these explanations, I don't think that's a bad thing, as I think you'll see that a lot of these can be really quite widely applied. So if you're picturing, like I said, a film poltergeist sort of situation... Don't worry too much, I think you'll get the idea. So I'm going to start with the more scientific and more psychological theories, and then later I will move on to the paranormal theories. So we will get there, don't worry. So the first possible explanation is confirmation bias. And again, that probably seems like a really, really obvious one. But confirmation bias is the human tendency for people to favour information that confirms to their beliefs or value. This bias can be argued as an essential part of how we utilise and interpret the huge stream of data that is reaching our senses every day. And it is crucial for our ability to make any kind of sense of it. People display this bias every day. So they select information that supports their views and they unconsciously discard contrary information or interpret ambiguous information in a way that fits how they expect it to be. So this is not a new theory. This is a very obvious theory. This is a pattern of thought that every human falls into in some way. Like I said, it's just intrinsic to how we interpret the world you can, in some ways, 
avoid it through conscious efforts. But it should be noted that under times of stress, people are less likely to be really paying particular critical attention to their choices and any bias they may be exhibiting. I'd just like to point that out there. I don't think we can expect people to be really criticising themselves that much when they are apparently under this kind of attack. Now, obviously, confirmation bias is easily applicable to all kinds of paranormal phenomena, and any time you can think of an individual who may recall a time that they were thinking of a person and the phone rang with that person on the other end. They won't remember all the times that they were thinking something completely different and that person rang them. If they have in their mind some idea of ESP or extrasensory perception, even the vague idea of this, whether they believe to apply it to themselves, they may favour information that seems to support it. Because the human brain likes patterns. So if you offer it a potential explanation, it's more likely than not going to sort of cherry pick the information that goes along with that theory, if that theory is persuasive to them. So this is explained even more concretely by a study by anomalistic psychologists Lange and Horan in 1998. I apologise if I've mispronounced their names. But their experiment goes as follows. 22 subjects individually visited five areas of a performance theatre and they were asked to notice the environment. So, you know, cold, chills, smells, etc, etc. 11 subjects formed the informed condition and they were instructed beforehand that the location was apparently haunted. The other 11 formed the control and they were just told that the building was under renovation. So these 22 subjects, both with very different ideas of their purpose in this building, were asked to notice the environment and any kind of variables that they picked up on. Analysis yielded significantly more intense perceptual experiences of nine of the 10 subscales in the informed condition, indicating that demand characteristics alone can stimulate paranormal-type experiences, i.e. those primed with the idea that an area was haunted were more likely to perceive it as so and ignore feedback to the contrary and were more likely to record it as such when asked. So I'm obviously skimming over a lot of detail for the sake of making a broad inquiry here. But clearly this effect, this kind of confirmation bias, this idea of being primed with an idea and then your brain naturally tuning out contrary information, clearly this effect alongside the characteristic of human memory and its tendency to be unreliable and fallible could explain all manner of poltergeist effects. Pain, for example, pain, particularly chronic pain, is known to impede the formation of accurate memories. Memory can also be subliminally aroused through priming, as it can be viewed in this case. As not all memory is consciously activated, a lot of memory formation is unconscious. And as we said, it is by necessity that that is true. Otherwise, we would never, ever get anything done. It is part of how we learn and grow as people, a certain amount of our memory is accessed and interpreted 
without our conscious intent, but this process may favour certain interpretations over others. For instance, most of the cases I will illustrate today have no lack of supporting witnesses, and these witnesses claim without a doubt that there can be no explanation beyond the paranormal for the events that they witness that plagued their friends and neighbours. But each, unfailingly, was brought in under the guise of proving or disproving the phenomena. They were each brought in after phenomena had already been noticed by the family or by the main focal point, and then brought in primed with this idea of a potential paranormal disturbance. The biggest enemy to poltergeist research continues to be, due to its unpredictable nature and reliance on the focus of the medium, the inability to collect truly unbiased data. For example, the Rosenheim poltergeist involved the office of a Bavarian lawyer in the 1960s. Parapsychologist Hans Bender investigated the phenomena and alleged that the electrical and mechanical disturbances only happened when a secretary, Anne-Marie, was present. Light fixtures exploded, incoming and outcoming calls were disturbed on the switchboard, resulting in huge charges to their company account. Instruments were installed by the investigators to measure any potential electrical interference or surges that may have caused the issue, but the investigation yielded no normal Results, no normal explanation, so it was viewed that it could only be paranormal. And the cause was pinned on Anne-Marie. She had, are the other words of um, the investigators, a rather unhappy home life. And so it was concluded that she was the cause, admittedly the unconscious cause, of all the exploding light tubes and other, as termed, irritating problems, as the effects seemed to occur or intensify as she walked the hallways. For example, you may find an issue in one office which would suddenly flare up into explosion of a light bulb when Anne-Marie walked past the office outside. So, funnily enough, it was the 1960s, so no real attempts were made to cure Anne-Marie's apparent mental stress, even though it was apparently severe enough to cause exteriorized problems she was just let go, and apparently the problem was solved. So the main issue, other than the fact that Anne-Marie obviously drew the short straw in this case, was that Bender never published his full findings, and in fact was roundly criticised for such. And once Anne-Marie left the firm, he counted the case as solved, and didn't really attempt to see if this behaviour followed Anne-Marie to her new place of work. It has later come to light that Anne-Marie was actually caught in the appearance of trying to fake some of the effects by an investigating police officer on the scene, and that Bender's instruments to apparently catch any kind of organic electrical interference or surges were easy to trick and manipulate, and in fact were. So he went into the case wanting to believe in it and wanting to be fooled, and he was. It's as simple as that. He went in with one idea and whether consciously or not, ignored all evidence to the contrary. This brings me on to my next potential explanation. And one that people bring up fairly often is that there may be some kind of financial gain 
or fame to be gotten by being part of a poltergeist case. Now, obviously, in the case we just talked about, we have two very different outcomes. For Anne-Marie, there was really no benefit to being dragged into this poltergeist phenomena. She lost her job, she was moved on from a position she was clearly quite happy in, and whatever massive emotional cause they identified, no attempt was made to try and fix it. So her position only worsened by being part of this poltergeist experience. Hans Bender, you can argue, you know, drew some notoriety for being involved in paranormal investigation. But again, even in this one case, he drew heavy criticism as poltergeist cases really don't seem to be very kind to anyone involved. There are so many contradicting pieces of evidence that really it's, it's hard for anyone to come out of this unmuddied. There are a few situations where people gain financially from being part of a poltergeist case, or at least they come out of it favorably in a social position. One I will talk about today is a very controversial poltergeist case as it's believed to be pretty much entirely fictitious. But again, I will talk about it as it is one case where I think you could make the argument that someone really benefited from it. There are ones later down the line, but again, the, the it's very, very muddied. The water's very muddied. But I want to talk about the demon drummer of Tedworth. So the demon drummer afflicted landowner John Montpassant. But basically, John had bought a lawsuit against a vagrant drummer who was apparently soliciting money from people um, with no real cause to. So he bought a lawsuit against the drummer and won and was awarded the man's drum. Now, from that point onwards, he was comically plagued by phantom drumming noises. And when questioned on it, he believes that this phantom drummer was set on him by a band of gypsies. Now, the story was published and republished, thought to be fraudulent, and in fact perpetuated and aided by the landlord's, landowner's children in some cases. It is thought that since John Montpassant, who apparently just loved to get people arrested, because he had caused the arrest of a band of gypsies, this apparent retaliation in a way, served as a kind of vindication for his position. So in some ways, you can argue that it, whether fraudulent or not, gave him a reason. So in both of these cases, he was right to have the drummer's drum taken away from him because look at this retaliation that he's plagued by. He was right to have this band of gypsies arrested because, look, they set upon him a, you know, a troublesome spirit. But like I said, most likely he received just a tangential benefit from it and it wasn't without great work on his part to kind of put across this implication. Like I said, his children appeared to have been in on it as well. They had to create this impression. Now I'd like to talk about another case now where someone seems to have at least on paper benefited from being a part of a poltergeist investigation but I want to talk about this one in terms of the potential explanation of hypnotic suggestion. 
Now we're going to be talking about Eleonora Zugan. Again, my pronunciation is probably awful, but Eleonora was a Romanian peasant girl born in 1914, and she was a victim of an apparent poltergeist attack. When the attack reared its head, she was taken under the wing of a countess and her friends. When they heard of the case, they rescued her and they took her to Vienna to be studied by notable paranormal investigators and scientists. They notably had an interest in parapsychology. So Eleonora didn't. She didn't really have any prior knowledge of this. She didn't have any paranormal education of any kind, really. She was a fairly superstitious person from her background. Uh, Poltergeists and hauntings weren't something that she was interested in to begin with. However, the Countess was, so she sought her out and she took her to Vienna and she brought her to be studied by various figures in the field. Now, Eleonora had marks and scrapes appear all over her body and numerous marks. And they were described by her as stigmata. So she really came to it from a very Christian point of view that this was marks caused by the devil, who she called Dracu. Now, this idea of being plagued by the devil had been impressed upon her as a young child since she was... I think it was three or four, she had been told that she was cursed by the devil. But these symptoms only really started to manifest the onset of puberty. It was concluded by those investigating the case that A, the stigmatic markings appeared spontaneously in various parts of Eleanor's body, and B, that Eleanor was not consciously responsible for the production of the marks. However, being not being consciously responsible does not, of course, mean that they didn't spring from her mind in some way. She was noted to have particularly sensitive skin, and it is suggested that due to constant hypnotic suggestion, i.e. the constant repetition that these marks may be paranormal in origin, and the sudden claustrophobic fussing attention from the Countess, she manifested these marks through hypnotic suggestion, i.e. as a young lady suddenly taken in by lots of doting friends with a real interest in the paranormal, that she may have kind of soaked up these ideas and unconsciously focused them on herself. And that is the very definition of hypnotic suggestion, focusing the conscious mind of the subject upon a single dominant idea. Now, whether it caused the marks to appear on her skin or simply persuaded Eleonora and those around her that the marks were there is another question. Often the recorded marks were not just welts, so they weren't just rashes or red marks that could have had an interior origin. They often took the impressions of teeth as physical impressions on the skin. Obviously, this kind of mechanical mark lies beyond the power of the brain unless you believe some paranormal theories that the brain may have the power to control external stimuli however it does not mean that these marks could not have been perceived as teeth marks even if they were not by Eleonora and by those around her who are under the same kind of hypnotic suggestion nevertheless there was some benefit to Eleonora in this case 
Her new position allowed her many ways to enjoy the kind of childhood joys that she couldn't before. She had a real interest in toys, and it was noted that the kind of toys and games she were interested in were ordinarily way below her intellectual level. But she got a lot of pleasure from toys and games and new clothes that she was given in a new position and all of the attention, the constant positive attention that came from it. Despite the marks and the bites that at points absolutely covered her body, at places outside of her reach, she did seem to find happiness at this time. Now the obvious question is a little troubling one, whether the Countess could have had something to do with some of these marks. Just because Eleonora could not bite herself on the shoulder blade, for example, she was surrounded by people who absolutely could have done, who had that level of access to her, and had the inclination to believe that it could happen to her. But whether she did or didn't have anything to do with it, the Countess at all times remained a very good impression of just a very doting guardian, and they lived happily together, so I'll leave it at that. This leads very neatly on to another theory, hysterical epidemics, or mass hysteria. Now this theory has the potential to prove any poltergeist phenomena, if you count proof as existing as the lived experience of a group of people being their truth, subjective as virtually all experience is, if you count that as proof, then this can pretty much prove everything. And I want you to keep in mind, think about what we talk about in terms of epidemic hysteria, and think about what we just learned about hypnotic suggestion, and imagine how these two could work together, and just how persuasive a scenario it could paint. So mass hysteria, also called epidemic hysteria, which I think implies a better fit, to be honest, is the spread of illness and symptoms, often nervous in origin, through a cohesive group or a community, whereby physical complaints that are exhibited unconsciously have no corresponding organic cause. So it is distinct from mass delusion, as those involved in epidemic hysteria may exhibit physical symptoms. It remains to this day a poorly understood phenomena, but with countless documented cases, but it forms the only plausible explanation for countless documented cases. And I'd urge anyone who's interested in the topic to have a little read about it. As we are already aware, the mind under stress is able to manifest a whole range of physiological symptoms. And humans en masse are liable to act in ways that they never individually would, especially when prompted with constant positive feedback reinforcing a particular viewpoint. Now, there is no particular predisposition in current thought to mass sociogenic illness. It is a behavioural reaction that anyone can show in the right circumstances. However, there are some cases that seem for whatever reason more likely to create cases of mass hysteria. For example, between the 15th and 19th centuries, 
nunneries, particularly European nunneries, were absolutely beset with cases of mass hysteria. We should remember that often the ladies that made up these convents were forced there by family. They didn't really have a choice on whether to be there or not. Their lives were also highly regimented and constrained while they stayed there. They had no real course for escape, no real individual wealth, and very little agency over their own destinies. They also lived in very close proximity, often with ladies of a very similar age and background to them, with similar stresses and similar lacks of outlets. Now, in these situations, there are cases of entire nunneries apparently being subject to possession, demonic possession, and the symptoms of such possession cause them to exhibit all kinds of behaviours that were prohibited to them normally. So crude behaviour, selfish behaviour, prohibited acts, specifically sexual acts. So this environment seemed to be a very fertile breeding ground for mass hysteria for many reasons. And I'm sure you can pick up on the parallels to the different kind of lifestyles we've already spoken about. Now, adolescents and children seem to be also, on average, more frequently afflicted with cases of epidemic hysteria than adults of a similar background. But it may also simply be the case that children's imaginations are just more powerful and active than adults. These kind of ideas may take hold socially, spread more easily, and sink a lot deeper into in terms of how they then impede the formation of beliefs around them. Now, unfortunately, proving mass hysteria as the cause of outbreaks is very, very difficult as it tends to spread very quickly. And in order for it to be proven, mass hysteria, all physical causes, environmental causes, other psychological causes need to be ruled out and as the epidemics seem to burn out as quickly as they form unfortunately this is virtually impossible however we do have a lot of cases that we believe to be epidemic hysteria we cannot know for sure but it seems to be a persuasive explanation it's one of those things that seems to be easier to diagnose i say diagnose easier to spot looking backwards. For example, recent research suggests a rash of outbreaks in factories following immediately following the Industrial Revolution, as well as more recent factory workers. It is thought that it is linked to the constant strain of factory work, and the fact that often these workers were the breadwinners of their households. They had few opportunities, few healthy outlets to de-stress or blow off steam. So this may have resulted in a kind of mass blowing off of steam, where worker after worker seemed to fall like dominoes, following a model of social contagion, falling to these stresses that they had no other ways of releasing. So one such outbreak social contagion, if you want to call it, is the June bug outbreak. And this, in 60s America, saw 
62 shift workers in a textiles factory, primarily female, they were afflicted with vomiting and the breaking out of hives on the skin. Now, again, I picked this one out because you could see how this would apply to the cases we've talked about. These kinds of physical symptoms, the breaking out of welts on the skin, can form a part of a social contagion. Now, the victims affected at the time believed it was caused by bug bites from a recent fabric shipment. But again, as I say, recent research believes it is more likely a case of mass hysteria. It is hard to use as an explanation because the human brain, it wants answers. So in this outbreak, it was easier to believe it was caused by bugs from a fabric shipment, even if that was false and there was no information to the contrary because the human brain needs patterns the human brain needs answers and sometimes just having this answer is enough for the behavior to slowly go away so dizziness and fainting have all been linked to outbreaks of mass hysteria as well as itching vomiting screaming tics visual disturbances anxiety paralysis and even loss of consciousness and memory formation issues taken together a group experiencing this mass illness could feel attacked by an outside agent or may or may not perpetrate poltergeist-like behaviors without their conscious knowledge or conscious consent the sheer range of symptoms that may be exhibited in these cases could explain the broad strokes of a poltergeist case and when taken with, as we said, issues with conscious recall and memory formation, you could see how it could form the bare bones of a paranormal case and the poltergeist could form the explanation needed to soothe and eventually diffuse the epidemic hysteria. Whatever causes people to have the same delusion, it is hard to classify this as, a, as collusion. It's hard to say that there is a reason behind it. There's often very little to be gained from it. It rarely leads to positive life changes, often the opposite. The best you could argue as a net gain from these kinds of experiences is a collective blowing off of steam, as we were saying. A temporary outlet for the stresses of their lives. Thank you for joining me in part two of the poltergeist story. Stay tuned for the next part where we start to dip our toe into the paranormal and parapsychological poltergeist theories. In the meantime, find me on Twitter under Weird Horizon and wherever you get your podcasts.